This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that hopes not to join the unemployment queue anytime soon. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is Dr. Anirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. Good day, Scott. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, mate. It's a good day to record a podcast. And today we are going to cover the big picture, a little bit on unemployment and US interest rates, but trust us, it's worth listening to. Also, retail shenanigans, Kogan and Godfrey's two end of the retail story. Also, the story of a mining company being bought, not for its mine, but for its infrastructure. We'll finish off with a mailbag, and if we have time, my turn to get on the high, high horse. All right, Doc, let's kick off with the big picture. Mate, there's been a little bit of kind of macro news and data out this week, in particular in Australia, the unemployment numbers. And in the US, we've had the US Fed rate go up for, I want to say, the seventh time since the lows of the post-GFC period. Let's start with unemployment, though. The rate came down from 5.6 to 5.4. The market kind of shrugged its shoulders and was almost a bit disappointed. Tell us why. Hmm. Well, so 5.4 is a, uh, is a good low unemployment number. You would number. have thought so. Oh, I think it's... Should have been a party, surely. It should have been a party, but uh, there are a couple of things. If you look, uh, I guess, below the surface here. Um, number one was the, uh, the total number of jobs created in the economy was about 12,000. That's good. Uh, and that's a good number. But the makeup of that was about... Uh, 32,000 jobs, 32,600 jobs created in the part-time sector. Right. Which was offset by a drop in full-time employment of 20,600. Okay. So we created more part-time jobs than full-time jobs. Right. Uh, so people were not happy about that, maybe. But still the unemployment where it went down, that's still going to be a positive somewhere, right? It's still a positive. I mean, you know, p- people complain about different things. Another, com- <laughs> uh, another complaint I heard was, uh, well, uh, there's some sort of un- underutilization, I guess, of people who want employment. Right. So the, the point is that people are, are ha- have part-time employment. Um, and if you ask them whether they want more hours, then they say yes. And the underutilization rate is those people who essentially are saying they want more hours but didn't get it. Underemployment. Okay, uh, cool. Uh, Underutilization. Makes sense. Uh, and that's around 14%, but that's around what has typically been yeah, for a while. Yeah. So Interesting, too. We saw the participation rate fall by 0.2 of a percent, which was exactly the same as the unemployment rate drop. Mm-hmm. So that explains almost the entire fall. And it's kind of a funny thing. The, the participation rate, I, I don't know. I, I have a, I have a, I have a usual rant, a usual, a usual complaint. I think economists are way too negative about the economy. I'd, I'd be keen on your thoughts. I think to some degree, when the participation rate goes up, no one celebrates. You know, when the unemployment rate holds steady, but it's steady because we created more jobs and more people wanted a job. In other words, the unemployment rate stayed the same, but we created a lot of jobs. There's not much celebration. And yet when there's a, a drop in the, in the participation rate, people kind of get a bit miserable. It kind of feels like the glass is half empty either way. Mm. So, so my thought on this is, you know, it, it sounds smarter to be bearish. Yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> so, pessimism so, always sounds smarter, right? Yeah, pessimism sounds smarter. And that's really what it is, I think, that you know, people really talk up the, uh, uh, the things that you know, did not hit the mark, but you know, forget about things that actually hit the mark and you know, we are doing well. I mean, I mean again, nothing to, you know, 5.4% is a very, very good number. We're optimists. We'll, we'll stick with that. Mate, exactly. let, me, let me go across the, across the big pond, across to the US. You're a keen student of US markets in particular. And this week we saw the US federal funds rate, their version of the RBA cash rate, increase by another 25 basis points or 0.25%. Mm-hmm. This is the, I think it's the seventh rise, I want to say, since the lows. 
And they're saying there might be more to come. What happened and, and what's coming next? Right. So the U.S. Federal Reserve, which is essentially the RBI equivalent mm-hmm. in the U.S., they raised the rate by, as you said, quarter percentage point or uh, 0.25%. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have what's called essentially a floating rate. So now the, the bank rate has been set to essentially between 1.75% and 2%. Right. And they, uh, their policy board, when they meet, they basically provide what's essentially a forecast of what's going to happen or mm-hmm. what they think is likely to happen. <laughs> uh, and uh, they had been penciling three rate rises this year. Now they're saying, well, there's going to be four rate rises, which mm-hmm. means two more to come. Instead and of one more. That in, instead of one more, which right. means two more quarter basis point uh, raises. Um, and they are projecting to sort of end uh, 2020 um, with a rate somewhere around 325 to 3.5%. Now, that's almost double the Australian rate. Exactly. And, and that's the interesting part. Our cash rate is 1.5%. Their right. cash rate now is 1.75% to 2%. Uh, this has happened, I think, the first time in now, what, 15 years? Yeah, yeah. It might be even longer. I think it might be 20 years almost. Yeah. Um, and the headline on AFR is interesting. It says that the Fed hike puts squeeze on the banks. Which right. Means- now, this is where it gets, gets real, right? Because what happens in the US is kind of interesting and it kind of feels theoretical and over there. And so we don't tend to worry too much about it. But there is a real Australian impact. Yes. So, so the impact is that you know, if fifty percent or so of our funds that you know the you know, money that people borrow have mm-hmm. to be raised overseas, and the overseas rate go up, yep. it basically means that the banks have to pay more to raise money. Right. So let's break that down. If you think about when you borrow, when you take out a loan from the bank, around half of your loan is funded by Australian people putting money into savings accounts, term deposits, bank products that kind of put money away. They read lend that. That's their core business. Mm-hmm. But these days, and probably for the last twenty or so years. The banks have got large amounts of money from the overseas, what they call the wholesale funding market. In other words, half of what, you know, if I take out a mortgage today for half a million bucks, about half of that will come from Australian depositors. The other half, they go overseas and say, hey, can we borrow some money from a wholesale and debt market in the US? They put that together with the money from here, give me that loan. And then by definition, their funding cost is kind of half set by the Australian deposit rates yep. and half set by that wholesale funding rate. Absolutely. And your point is if we see US rates go up, then the average mix of my the, the interest rate the bank's got to charge me must either go up or the bank's going to make less money. But you kind of can't have it. There's no third option. Yeah, right? there's no really th- third options in, in you know. And the banks would like to make more money or at least keep making the same amount of money. They <laughs> and their shareholders would, would very much appreciate uh, and, and that. And that's too. what the bank shareholder, uh, shareholders would want. <laughs> and that's how you can going to, you know you're going to keep those dividends and the franking credits coming with the dividends. So yeah, um, so this basically means that you know the rates essentially have to go up even right. if um, or should go up yep. theoretically speaking. Um, <laughs> no, nothing is nothing no, is no, uh, nothing definite. is nothing is definite. Exactly. No, there's no guarantees to anything. Right. Um, yeah. So. It basically means that uh, we would likely see rate increases being passed through, um, even if RBA doesn't do anything. I think it's a really good point. We might have made this point before, but I think that's that's important. We, we focus so much on the RBA and what they're doing for rates, and, and the average the average retail investor, the average mortgage holder, looks at the RBA rate and tries to kind of say, well, okay, RBA is not going to lift rates, therefore my rate's not going to go up. But it's only really half of the story. We really don't yeah. focus too much on that. We haven't had to over the last 20 years. Yeah. But as you say, this is the first time in a couple of decades we've seen that uh, the Australian rate is actually lower than US rates and probably likely to remain so really for a decently long time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, combine that with other stuff that we have talked about last time, you know, housing market. And oh, so come on. Uh, no, enough about housing. Enough about <laughs> okay, housing. Okay, fine. We'll not talk about housing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next week. Hold, <laughs> okay, okay, hold your horse on that. We'll I'll see hold, how we go. I'll, I'll, I'll hold off. <laughs> there, there, is, there is a connection, though, to our, to our next story. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. We want to talk about the retail space. We want to particularly talk about uh, 
on one hand, Kogan, the kind of the the infant terrible, if you like, the 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 upstart, the Amazon wannabe, the 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 company's growing at leaps and bounds. On the other hand, there's poor old Godfrey's. Well, let's start with Kogan. So we no, talked last it, week a little bit about the fact that Kogan was, or Kogan's founder and CFO, so Rosalind Kogan and the CFO, whose name I forget, um, is we're looking to sell their shares. Now they say they didn't sell the shares; they didn't mm. get an offer they wanted. All went quiet until was it Tuesday or Wednesday mm. this week? Mm. That's okay. So you don't really like vacuum cleaners, do you? Uh, I mean, that's what you ah, I, I, I prefer not to use a vacuum cleaner if I don't have to, but I, I unfortunately find myself having to on a regular basis. I have a five-year-old, so uh, these things these things are, are semi-regular occurrences, okay. unfortunately. Okay. I'll, I'll go back to Kogan. Tell me first. about Kogan first. Um, so on June 5th, um, Russell and Kogan and David Sheffer, yep. uh, the CFO, um, they basically told the market that they didn't receive uh, kind of bid that they would like right. to sell the stock, which yep. basically means that they didn't get the price that they wanted. Um, the price, uh, was above nine dollars, I think, the day before the share price. Yep, yeah, yep. share price. Then on June thirteenth, uh, so just a week later. No, it's a week later. Yep, uh, they announced that they received an unsolicited bid. Okay, <laughs> that's a key point. Unsolicited, right? Bid for six million shares. In other words, they didn't go and look for it. Someone, someone, no, somebody, someone. They, they, hello, hello, this is Rosalind Coken speaking. Uh, Rosalind, I'd like to buy six million shares, please. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Or somebody just knocked on his door, you know, on, <laughs> on, right. his, on his new shiny house, um, and they said, they, "Well, they, they're happy to buy six million shares," and okay. they reluctantly, the directors reluctantly show, sold shares. <laughs> No, no. I'd love to reluctantly have a $50 million problem, Doc. Oh. I've got to say, if someone offered me a $50 million bucks, I'd reluctantly accept, I think. Uh, but but, but there's, there's one point I want to make here. All right. The, uh, on, on the 13th uh, or on the 12th, mm-hmm. the share price was around seven eighty, which right. means somebody paid less. And if they did not accept the bid on the prior instance when the share price was higher, which yeah. means, you know, they basically reluctantly accepted a lower price. Mm. This is just my guess. We haven't seen uh, the um, the director's uh, change of ownership being lodged yet, so we don't know, but that's my guess. In fact, uh, breaking news, Matt, it came out about... Ten minutes ago, so we've, we've just we've just had it hit the hit the wires. Uh, interestingly enough, too, I, I will say that part of that announcement said uh, they have reluctantly accepted the bid due to personal financial commitments. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like a forced seller if you want to buy shares on the shares on the cheap, right? You can, you can pretty much say, "Well, I know you need to sell, so mm-hmm. here's an offer. Take it or leave it." It sounds a little bit to me like they ha- they needed the money. Mm. They sold as few shares as they needed to to effectively get the money they wanted to get it across the line. And as you say, the fact they waited an extra couple of days or a week cost them. What, well, that's the best part of what five million bucks, I suppose. Well, something like that, you know, a few Ferraris Jeez. or something like that. A that's few a, Maseratis. That's, a, that's an expensive week, right? <laughs> very. It's very little else you can do in a week that's going to cost you five million bucks, but they they manage it. Now, despite that, I still like Hogan very much. What's your thought on Hogan, mate? Do you do you like it? Do you hate it? What, what's your what's your well, view? I, well, I really like um, online retail. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the way to go in retail. So I like Hogan for that reason. Um, I don't have a view on the valuation, but I think it's it's a good company with a good strategy. Um, so I actually like the company. Now, from the sublime to the unfortunately really badly struggling, Godfrey's was out this week, their fourth profit downgrade in 12 months. And they've yeah. said that they're going to earn between zero and one and a half million bucks. Now, in the background, we have the the co-founder, who I think we want to say co-founded in 1950, I want to say. The guy's 90. 99. He's, he's going to buy 99. Is he that old? Something there you go. 90 something. Old, yeah. we'll, we'll split the difference called 95-ish. Okay. I'm sure he doesn't mind either way. He'd be, he'd be happy to take a couple of years off. He's he's going to buy the company. He's got, he owns 82 or 83% of it now. He's yep. hoping to buy the rest. This is kind of a, I mean, he's hoping to buy it to, I read it in the, the paper a couple of days ago, basically to kind of try and salvage something of the family fortune. Mm-hmm. Um, he may see this as kind of a last roll of the dice. What is going on with Godfrey's? 
Oh, so this looks like a, I'd use the word basket case. <laughs> <laughs> that's a technical term, Phil. If you're listening, that's uh, you won't find that in the economics textbooks, but trust us, basket case is a thing. Uh, and this, I mean, this is pretty, uh, it's taken a turn for the worse, as you said. Does it well, suck? It, can we say, re- it get it really sucks. Vaccine cleaner sucks. It, suck. well, it sucks. Okay, right, really fine. sucks. Bad. We had a boom tish, Liam, if you can find me on it. My, my jokes aren't, aren't so good without some sort of sound effect. An audience laughter or something would be nice if you could, mate. Help us out. Jeez. So, so uh, I'll just add, on May 9th, <laughs> yeah. the company said that they are looking to make about $3.5 million. Right, so a month ago, this is. Let's, let's put it in context. Not that. Four, four, four lonely weeks yeah. ago. Four lonely weeks ago, the, the company advised the market that they're going to make about $3.5 million of operating profit. Everyone's happy. Okay, not bad. Now, when the new management has taken over, they figure, well, that's going to be between zero and $1.5 million. That is, like, brutal. Add add to the mix, same store sales, or like-for-like sales. So when you compare the sales this year with the year ago Mm -hmm. across the same store set, that has fallen a brutal 8.5%. Okay? And and, and and brick-and-mortar retail is hard. Right. Uh, and it's really tough. And, and and that's because, you know, you've got a fixed cost base, right? And, I mean, if you don't make enough money coming through, you've got a fixed, largish cost base, you're in trouble. Right. Right. And that 8.5% drop is really big. I mean, you know, that's a big number. Uh, in fact, to, to, I mean, eight point, if you lost if you lost 8.8% of your, your, your um, stadium crowd, not a big deal, right? You lose 8% of your retail sales. Mm. That pretty much wipes out your entire profit margin, which is exactly what we're seeing really? from, yeah. from Godfrey's. Exactly. Just, just for reference, this was a three dollars sixty stock. How much? Back is it in now? March twenty fifteen. Fast forward three years, mm. it's now thirty three cents. That's a ninety percent value destruction, <gasps> and no, no better word than destruction mm. for that. In the space of only three years, hopefully for for, uh, for for the guy's sake, he can make some money out of this. Hopefully, he can get fixed and turned around. It did massively miss the move towards stick vacuums. I think we might have talked about this before as well. Um, it just entirely missed it. Complete with um, the future is in stick vacuums. In fact, even Dyson is mm. not going to make any of the usual kind of pull behind what they call barrel vacuums anymore. It's all about the stick vacuum. Well, Godfrey's is way, way, way behind the game. Mm. Um, whether it can catch up or not. You know, the good old days they used to say cleanliness is next to Godfreyness. Do you remember the ad? Oh, it was the guy with the, the, vac- the vacuum and the, and the bowling ball. Um, I hope that's not going to be just uh, an article of the past. Hopefully they can turn this thing around. I'm not particularly hopeful, I've got to say. It's a, it's a long it's a long bow to draw, given, as you've already said, the, the growth of online retail and the response of the category killers like the Harvey Normans mm. and JB Hi-Fi's who are trying to get whatever business they can. Godfrey's feels like the kind of third place loser in retail. You can't afford to be in that spot, right? Does, does Kogan sell Kogan-branded vacuum cleaners? If it doesn't, I'm sure it will very soon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet that's the next one. Indeed, indeed. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, buying a mining company, you think about the reasons you could buy a mining company, Doc, and you buy it for maybe the ore, you might buy it for the price, you might want to speculate on what else you can find. There's a million reasons to do it. It turned out this week that Atlas Iron, the the kind of um, the, the, the miner, miner, if you like, the, the, the smaller miner of the group, uh, it's had some really high cost or it's almost gone broke in the past. At the moment, it's kind of subject to a bit of a three-way tussle for control. There's, there's bidding parties, including Fortescue Mines, including General Reinhardt's Hancock Prospecting and one other overseas player, who are all trying to buy Atlas Iron. Mm. And yet the share price fell during the week, not because of anything they found or didn't find, mm. not because of the movements in, in iron ore or other prices. Why did the share price fall this mm. way? Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good one. So the third party in the mix was the Mineral Resources, a company called Mineral oh, that's Resources. That's right. So they're all interested in the junior miner, not for, the, as you said, not for the mine, not for whatever, <laughs> whatever they're mining. They all want a piece of the uh, the capacity, loading capacity at Port Hedland, 
So you're going to buy a mining company That's the, so you can access the port. So that you can access the port because they have a deal or they have <laughs> exclusive rights to certain parts of the port or certain, you know, certain capacity at the port. Right. Um, well, well, but the, the shares fell because the WA government came out and said, well, we are giving out this capacity mm. to junior miners. Right. And you guys who are bidding, you're probably not junior miners. Okay, so, <laughs> but, okay, but, but even then, let, let, me, let me just go back to it. How is it possible that an entire mining company is worth more or at least a large part of its value for, for, for port access rather than the actual mine itself? Oh, maybe port access is limited, right? I mean, you know, that's government controlled. Uh, there's a, it's an infrastructure which the government controls. You have a critical asset. Mm-hmm. And the critical asset is tied with this junior mining company and everybody wants a piece of that asset yeah i think i think it's a it's a, it's a funny it's a funny conversation right so if you think about iron ore miners it's, it's often been joked and, and probably like more, like all jokes there's a kernel of truth to it maybe more than a kernel in this case that an iron ore miner is largely an infrastructure company with a mine at the end in other words <laughs> it's all about the transport you think about something that sells for 40 dollars a ton so imagine a ton of dirt and then say you only get 40 dollars for that and you get 40 dollars for that when you drop it in china and now you think about where's the value creation or where or what's the difference between a good and a bad operation if you're a miner, you can't control the price. You can't control the volume, except that you know. Hopefully, China will want more. So, how do you how do you how do you create some sort of cost competitive outcome? And the answer is, you've basically got to be able to get it to the customer as cheaply as you possibly mm-hmm. can. And this is where rail lines and ports come in super handy. If you have an iron ore mine, it doesn't even matter how much iron ore you have, or even how easy it is to get off the ground. If you can't get it to, to the customer cheaply. The mine's useless at that sort of price. At four hundred dollars a ton, there's a very, very different story. Mm-hmm. And we saw when the iron ore price spiked to one hundred and thirty, hundred and forty bucks a ton a few years back. Anyone could buy an iron ore and make a fortune. But it's it's just incredibly, incredibly tough. Mm-hmm. That the costs that that someone like a Fortescue get the mine, the ore out of the ground for is like fourteen, fifteen bucks a ton, mm-hmm. that, and that's delivered to the customer. Mm-hmm. If you just I, I, you try and visualize a ton of dirt, and imagine that's worth fourteen dollars. You know, you pay fourteen dollars for two coffees in the Sydney CBD these days, and so. That, that's kind of a, you know, that, that's the big story. That's why the ports are so valuable is that Fortescue and Mineral Resources and Hancock would love that port access, not even for Atlas's own ore, mm. but for the ore themselves, they want to get out of the ground. If they can find a closer, cheaper, mm. easier route, if they can get more more effectively uh, capacity out of those ports, that's where the real value was. And it's mm. an interesting lesson for investors because there's often opportunities where you might look at a company and say, well, Atlas Iron, do I like it or not like it? And you kind of you start down the path of well, it's a it's a miner. It's got this cost. It's run this well. Here's the price, and it turns out that most of the value that the other people see in Atlas is not for that at all. And there's often other investors where there's kind of hidden value, right? Mm. There's there's parts of those businesses that maybe you don't necessarily see. And if you're if you're an enterprising investor and you want to do a bit little bit of digging, you can often find some good opportunities. Mm-hmm. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, I want to move on to uh, actually, well, before we do, I, I want to, uh, there's an example of that kind of hidden value. Mm. Um, and it's one of the biggest and best companies on the mm. planet, at least in my view. Mm. I reckon you might be able to tell me, despite the mm. fact that you've taken the other side of this bet last week, mm. um, give me give me a very high profile example of a company maybe starts with A, you may have an mm, M and an A I, and a I, Z I, I, and O and an you, you just want me to talk about your, your bet. Well, uh, well, okay. No, you don't have to talk about the bet, but but Amazon is a really, really key yeah, really example of hidden value, or at least some mm. business that's not as well understood from the outside as yeah. maybe some people would believe. So Amazon was, for the longest time, regarded as the online retailer, right? The, still still the, is. And it, Still is. Just the biggest, the biggest <laughs> online retailer. The, the biggest and best, yes, exactly. The biggest and best. I, I own the stock too. <laughs> there you go, good I man. I have no problem with that. Good man. Um, we both own it, so uh, let's, let's so, disclose so, that. So that's that's good. Uh, 
But for the longest time, they yep. did not disclose how much money they were making off Amazon Web Services. Now, most people might, might maybe, maybe most people do by now, but for a very long time, most people, people didn't even didn't know realize. what Web AWS was, let alone yeah. that it was of any value. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so I think that it was in the tech community, people knew about it because right. every tech developer was using it. Right, but then those numbers were not discussed. There were, there were rumors around, and right, you know, right, it's right. like you know, maybe it's a Fortune 100 company or. So, so just take a step back. What is Amazon Web Services? Just for those who don't necessarily know. So, people who want to host services on the cloud, mm -hmm. you want to run your uh, entire IT infrastructure on the cloud, you right. can actually okay. do it on Amazon Web Services. So, so effectively, rather than having servers in the back room of an office somewhere mm -hmm. in, 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 a, in a retail shop or a commercial office or something else, you basically you're contracting out that storage and access kind of process. To the cloud, and Amazon's one of the big hosts of all that, exactly. both the computing yeah. services and the storage services, right? Yeah. So computing services, storage services, lots of other things, database. You can run databases on the cloud. Right. Pretty much everything. And a cool story, Amazon is, if, unless this is, it might be apocryphal, but I'm pretty sure it's true. Mm. It kind of was born because Bezos realized there was kind of latent capacity in its servers at different times. Mm. Is that is that true? Uh, well, I, I don't know. I don't know whether this is a real story or not. This is what I've heard too. That <laughs> makes a good story. It just makes a good story. So the story goes like this, that every time, uh, essentially, they uh, during Christmas time, mm -hmm. they had a huge, significant surge in demand for serving right. their customers. Everyone's on the site. Everyone wants to buy stuff. Exactly. And, and therefore, to provision for uh, Christmas time, they had to be, build all these internal resources and, you know, build a scalable system that scales right. up during Christmas time. The, the issue then was that after Christmas, <laughs> they need all the spare resources that they had created. <laughs> well, you know, so the story goes that they basically decided that, well, you know, we can make some money off this. Well, that's the story, I guess. And normally, so that's interesting because the, as, as I'm listening to you talking, the answer was, Paul, why don't you get some, some, access, some storage from the cloud? And the reality was that didn't exist. That's exactly yeah. why AWS started. They had to originally provision themselves. They couldn't just outsource that to the cloud. They had to say, well, there is no one doing this. We'll buy more computers. We'll buy more servers. And I'll, I'll use the layman's version. You'd have a much better technical explanation. We'll buy lots of computers. We'll put them in the back rooms when we need them. That's the that's the very birth of this kind of idea yeah. is they, they couldn't use the cloud service. It didn't exist. But their capacity kind of peaks and troughs created the opportunity for AWS itself. You spin up resources when you need them. You spin them, spin them down when you don't need them. So you sound much more technically after them. Spin up and spin down is, is I'm going to have to put that into my, uh, I'm, I'm going to spin up a new topic for us now. All right, okay. How about that? Well, that's, that sounds pretty cool. Let's do that. <laughs> All right. We had one email from, oh, sorry, a tweet from, uh, from a listener during the week from John. Um, and John says, how important is it to watch the PE weightings within your portfolio? And, and John uh, attaches a, a chart where there's a whole lot of kind of high PE stocks uh, in, in green and there's a, a whole lot in red uh, of low PE stocks. Mm. And he says, look, I've got, I've got stocks all in the green, none in the red. Um, that kind of, you know, should I be worried about that? How, how important is the PE when it comes to thinking about what's in your portfolio, how much you should hold? How do you think about, or how should our listeners think about high PEs, low PEs inside their portfolio? Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take the first stab and I'm sure you have a view on this. Um, <laughs> because, because I'm an arrogant so-and-so and I've got an opinion on everything. I just have an opinion on everything. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's, that's what I'm paid for. That's what we're doing here. Okay. So, so the PE yep. is basically the share price divided by earnings per share. Excellent. You Thank take you. the total earnings and divide it by the total number of share count, and you get the earnings per share. Nice. Now, that by itself tells you pretty much nothing. Well, hang on. If I've got a stock on a PE of 14, so it's 14 times earnings, one on 30 times earnings, surely the one on 14 times earnings is cheaper than the one on 30. That, that's got to be that much at least. Well, well, it doesn't, because what it does not tell you is what is the earnings growth rate. 
You know, if you have earnings growing at 100% right. versus earnings growing at like minus 5%, would you pay 14 times earnings for a minus 5% growing company? Oh, Maybe not, so. right? Right. So so that I think that's that's what's missing. First is the fact that you're missing completely the growth rates from the equation. Okay. Right? Most of the time what you'd see is the companies that have the very high PEs are also the ones that are growing really fast. Right. The other thing that you're missing from the equation is what what about the company's investment for future earnings, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's all about the future. Yes. Right? And, and You can't buy last year's profits. You want to get next year's. Exactly. Yep. So, so if you're investing for the future, then you might actually see the E shrink, right. the earnings shrink, because, you know, it's going into some sort of CapEx, some development work, R&D, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to make that money off in the future. In the artificial intelligence world of the future, those people who are investing today are going to make the money tomorrow or day after, well, you know, mm-hmm. next year, and so on. So I think those things are missing, and that's, I think you can't just look at the PE. Uh, I had a cursory look at that list, uh, and, and, you know, it looked to me that the companies on the green are the, you know, what I would call the this generation's company or the next generation company. Right, the right, companies right. on the red look like the ones that are from the last generation <laughs> or, or the last, you know, maybe... Let's not have generation wars yeah, here on the yeah. podcast. So I, I think it's a really good point. I think, as, as you say... You have to every PE. If the market's working even even slightly efficiently, the PE yes, it, it's expressed in today's price versus last year's earnings, but that kind of doesn't matter other than as an indication of a base for the future growth. And as investors, and particularly as well, investors by definition should be long term, as as our co-founder and, and chief rule breaker David Gardner likes to say. Um, but to that extent, if we are going to be long term in our approach, we really don't care about this months earnings, even this year's earnings, but a few years down the track. And as you say, if I was going to buy a business today and I thought that business was going to generate a whole lot of profit in three years' time, it's kind of that number that matters, right? Because that's the money I get rather than rather worry about what, what happened last year either way. And I think that's that's part of it. Is it not fair to say though, mate, that so so you're I, I let me let me let me assume that what you're saying about next generation's company versus last generation mm. is that you you're saying that these are going to be the dominant players of the future and so are justified in having higher PEs because they're the growth businesses. Mm-hmm. And the kind of last generation's companies are on their if not deathbed, they're kind of on the way out, they're not going to do much, and so they should have lower PEs. Yeah. What about the context of say a Let's go with the dot-com bubble in 1999, mm-hmm. or let's go with the GFC kind of maximum pessimism in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Isn't there a possibility that the market's just – that the peers are expressing the market's sentiment rather than actual likely futures? In other words, if I was to take – I would, I would speculate that a quarter of the growing companies, a quarter of the ones with high PEs and a quarter of the ones with low PEs, the, the ones with the high PEs, a quarter of them are probably going to go badly, and a quarter of the ones with low PEs are probably going to go well just because – there's every chance that, that sentiment is having more of an impact on the share price than the actual business itself. Right. So, so I mean, and, uh, I think that's a valid point. Um, I think the main thing is that if you're, if you're thinking about, <coughs> if you're in, say, that in, a, in a 2008-like, you know, recessionary mm. environment and this, all the stocks have been pummeled, right. well, well, then you can look at the PE and look at, say, historic PE and compare mm. it with the mm. current PE and say, well, you know, this really looks cheap and I should buy it, right? Um so yeah, there's some amount of sentiment involved, and you know when the sentiment goes sour, hmm. everything falls, and maybe the growth companies fall more. So again, to me, it's a very relative thing. I, I think I I try to look at it more from a relative point of view. Maybe so you look at the let's say the ASX 200 has hmm. a certain hmm. expected growth rate hmm. and has a certain PE. If I'm buying something with a higher PE, then I do expect it to grow at a faster rate, right? right. And if, right. as long as it does that, right, I think I'm fine. Yeah. 
right? But there are some high PE stocks that actually won't do that, right? I guess that's my point. Uh, yeah. Is that you should, we shouldn't assume just because they're high PEs, they're all going to be successful. Yeah. The market still gets these things wrong. Uh, I use the, the counter example, Berkshire Hathaway, one of my favourites, as, as you well know, Doc. Mm-hmm. Um, Warren Buffett's company. Back in 2007, it was trading this. These numbers are, are bizarre, right? But stick with us, listeners. $143,000 a share for Berkshire in December 27, uh, 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, only less than 18 months later, they were changing hands for under $80,000 a share. Mm-hmm. And that was in the very midst of the dot-com boom. And I, th- I think there's some sense, and I just, I, I think, you know, I completely agree with you for what it's worth, and, and I should say that. But also, those with low PEs, yes, maybe they are yesterday's stocks, and maybe maybe they're, they're destined for mediocrity. But maybe, just maybe, some of those are being oversold because the market's looking in the wrong direction. And so to some degree, you know, was Berkshire really worth half the value 18 months later that happened to coincide with everyone embracing the, the dot-com heroes? I don't think that was necessarily the case. And we do see sentiment can swing too wildly in both directions. Very probably, a lot of those high PE companies are going to go on to be very, very successful, but some won't. And equally, a lot of those low PE companies will and do justify a very low PE because they are, if not awful companies, at least relatively ordinary. But you can find opportunity in both of those slots if you look carefully at what the business is. And is the market really reflecting the true reality or is it just getting a bit carried away with the sentiment of of a particular industry or company or, or time in the market? No, I, I I I completely agree with that. I mean, you can you know even you know cigar butts can be useful. Right? You got it. So, you got it. Yeah. Motley Fool Money financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Liam, release the horses. That's right. We almost didn't have enough time, but luckily I can make this thing stretch just a little bit further to take our favourite nag for one lap around the track. I'm going to rant about the Australian dollar, Doc, and I'd be keen if you have some thoughts as we talk about this. Mm. It drives me bananas. People look at the Australian dollar and cheerlead it as though it's a thing that has inherent underlying value. When the dollar's up, we say, oh, it's great, the dollar's up. And when the dollar falls, we say, oh, it's terrible, the dollar's falling. Isn't that awful? Oh, down it goes. And somehow we get some sort of sense of A, national pride, and B, even investment approach from the sense that a higher dollar must be good because, hey, it's higher, and a lower dollar must be bad because, hey, it's lower. And it just makes it makes me absolutely bananas. There is a real lack, even among serious economists, there's this sense that somehow it's a, it's a, it's a national pride score or it's some sort of national success score. And if it's not over a certain amount, if it's not going up, then that must be a terrible thing. And we say that when we talk about the news coverage, when we talk about the econ- economics coverage, there is this real sense that a higher dollar must be better and a lower dollar must be worse. And I just, it drives me bananas because if you think about it logically, unless you're an importer and unless you're going overseas, a lower dollar is actually a net positive for Australia, which is an exporting country. We export tourism. We export education. We export manufacturers. We export primary goods like wool and wheat and, by the way, iron ore and gold. It just it drives me bananas. It really makes me grumpy. Now, if we invest overseas, that obviously changes how much money we get for our, for our Australian dollars when we do it. But it just I don't understand why people persist in pretending that somehow this is a score of national well-being or some ridiculous... It's almost, it's almost the kind of, you know, like we're making up for something by having this Australian dollar as our, as our kind of hero metric. Between, between that and Commonwealth Games gold medals, it's kind of how we see ourselves in the world. Am I completely wrong or is this fascination, this obsession with a higher dollar really leading us up the garden path? Well, I, th- I, th- I think you're not completely wrong, although I'll say that. I'll take that. You want to be correct. All we, the all, time. we all like oh, to be, right? Right. Yeah. Plus, uh, I am most of the time, so that helps. Well, that's true. <laughs> How can I disagree? <laughs> <laughs> you're, welcome uh, to, you're welcome to disagree if you want, mate. Just, just don't expect to 
check next week for you. Yeah, that, exactly. That's, that's that's why I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> you're, you're always right, and you're always come great. on. Give me the give me the counter. Okay. So, the, well, I don't have a counter in the sense that I actually agree with you. Um, the disadvantages are, I guess, that's as I guess our dollar um, becomes less powerful mm-hmm. than our. You know, when we are importing things, we are paying more, which yes. effectively translates into us paying more. So if we are importing cars, sure. televisions, whatever else we are importing. Computers. All, computers, yep. all the yep. consumption costs yep. more. And, you know, Australians love going on holidays. I love going on holidays. <laughs> and I really don't like paying more for steak when I go overseas. <laughs> so, uh, I, would, I would say, Dr. on behalf of the Australian beef farm, you should stay in Australia, find, you support your local restaurant, have a lovely steak beef dinner at, uh, at a, local, a local place I, near you. I have nothing against local uh, farmers and I love the local steak but when I go overseas I also want to have the steak <laughs> fair and, enough and, and, and you know your, the turbine air turbine fuel goes up um, <laughs> so yeah uh, but it did, as you said for, for an export economy it's, mm. it's, it's an advantage um, there's also some equation here and I might not get this uh, you know 100% right but I think the inflow of money from mm-hmm. overseas also decreases mm-hmm. to some extent correct yeah and and that has impact on I guess investments, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I mean, it's you know, it's nothing is uh, it's, it's not something that we should be completely, um, you know, we can't have a black and white view on it. Right, and, uh, right, goes like, both ways, and uh, goes both ways. And we should say to your point about to your point about paying more for for steak overseas and, and the price of jet fuel, it also increases things like petrol costs. And that, I mean, that's that's yeah. a real part of people's household yeah. budgets, isn't it? It's not painless and it's not worth nothing. Um, but but sometimes to some degree, and this is where the RBA have for the last couple of years been desperately waiting for the US to increase rates for exactly that reason. If yeah. it pushes the dollar down, it makes our exports much more competitive. Yeah. And it really is a we think about it, think about the unemployment number we talked about earlier. Think yeah. about wages. When you add economic stimulus to a local economy, you are going to create jobs. You are going to create yeah. profits. You are going to create um, hopefully for the market for all of us listening. Wage inflation would all like to be paid a little bit exactly. more. You mentioned yeah. that to me every now and again, Doc. Yeah. And I, I'm I always try and listen to that and, and then ignore it. So. So uh, I think you know to some degree I get there are there are there are no clear well there's not there's not a lack of losers when someone wins but I do think that the frankly if it was up to me I, I would prefer in a lower Australian dollar I think we're much better off as a country with a lower dollar than a higher one particularly as things struggle to really take off in terms of economic growth in the country yeah I, I would agree with that I think that 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 makes sense mate you if you agree with me is a great way to finish the podcast so we will just, just give me the raise. <laughs> I, we got we got to close. No time, no time. Oh, come on. <clears throat> All right, that wraps us up. But before we go, don't forget you can subscribe, and you should, to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, that's Doc's favourite, or your favourite Android podcast app, which is mine. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a big five-star rating on iTunes and tell your friends. I'm sure they could do with a little foolish straight talk too. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another round of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.